Phil is also the chairman emeritus of Stand in the Gap, a ministry to the underserved, and was on the President's Advisory Council for the College of Biblical Studies. They both live in Austin, Texas, and he's the chairman of the Board of Spiritual Overseers at a Gateway Community Church in Austin. So um, in our parlance, I think that would be chairman of the elder board, basically. So uh, Phil is an elder, um, you know, so we're really, really excited to have him speak. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop there, and can we welcome Phil up this morning? Wow, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. How would he sound? Good, awesome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's great to be with you. It was an appropriately foggy morning in the Bay Area this morning, and I bring you greetings from Austin, Texas, where it is approaching the temperature of the surface of the sun as we speak. <laughs> so it's really refreshing to be with you. Uh, I've entitled this uh, message today, Whispers of the Soul, Exploring the Voices that Shape Our Choices. I once had the privilege of spending about an hour or so with the Minister of Education for Prime Minister Maggie Thatcher. And he was a fascinating man with some fascinating stories, one of which was as he was traveling across England uh, on a research tour, somebody had arranged for him to have breakfast with none other than Sir Paul McCartney. And for those of you who were born in this millennium, go ahead and get your search engines out. You can see who that was. Uh, but he was a part of a rock band called The Beatles that was pretty successful. And uh, he was their bass player most of the time, but he was a songwriter. <clears throat> they had this breakfast with a friendly chat, got to know one another, and they discovered they were both from Liverpool. And McCartney paused in the conversation. He asked the minister, he said, where did you go to high school? He replied, the Belvedere Academy. And McCartney paused and got a pensive look on his face and said, oh, I really wanted to go there. They didn't think I could, you know. Now think about that. It was wistful. By that point, the Beatles had recorded 47 platinum recordings. That's second only to Elvis Presley. He had multiple awards. He had been knighted by the queen. And I think that one shows him, yep. And yet, here he was, wistful, his face expressing the disappointment of a wound from long ago. Don't you wonder what was going through his mind, what might have been said to that young man who aspired to go to an elite academy, but had people send a clear message that they didn't think he could cut it, that whatever talent he might have had was of no value. The minister told another story uh, that was also pretty interesting to me, caught my attention. He, he went to grade schools throughout the country, and he uh, would ask one question of the first graders. Do we have any artists in the room? And everyone would shoot up their hand, some of them enthusiastically waving, then he would go to the third grade class and ask the very same question. Every now and then somebody sheepishly raised their hand in the back of the room. Do you wonder what happened in two years' time to the enthusiasm and optimism of those young minds? What voices might have told them, I can't, 
or you can't. And those voices became like prisons, like slam doors that they wouldn't walk through. The Bible teaches us about another story of how voices can shape our decisions and our behaviors, the inner narrative we have, how we respond to life. We meet in Judges chapter 6, Gideon. And uh, at that time, God had singled Gideon out to lead his people in a battle against their oppressors, the Midianites. And so powerful, so crushing were the Midianites, they would, the Israelites had to hide out in caves. The, the Midianites would come and steal their food and take their livestock. And so it's understandable how Gideon would have serious doubts and fears. And when the prophet of God came and said to the people that he was going to deliver them, you can almost sense Gideon saying, yeah, right, I'll believe that when I see it. But then an angel came to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And in the next verse coming, he says, he was so doubtful, he literally says, pardon me? Like, you talking to me? How can I, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And despite those doubts, God continued to gently speak to him, to patiently give him miraculous signs to encourage him, assuring Gideon that he was with him. And eventually, Gideon bravely chose to sweep aside those voices from the culture and rise up in strength with God. Those binding messages cast down and held him back, those ones that had held him back from becoming who God intended for him to be, which was one of the most prominent heroes in all of Scripture. So past experiences, words or actions that we hear from significant people shape how we process life. If we're mostly exposed to safe, nurturing, grace-filled environments, we tend to form positive messages like relationships can be healthy, I belong, I'm valued, I can do this with God's help. But most of us, to some extent or another, have had traumas, hurts, one time or another in our lives. If our experiences are unstable and wounding, harmful messages get deeply embedded in our emotional memory. The tapes playing inside of our head can say things like, conflict is scary, feelings are bad, I only count when I perform. I'm on my own. I can't count on anyone but me. Or, like Gideon, I'm the least of the least. Or, you fill in the blanks. Messages we internalize, our experiences, good or bad, form a lens that colors how we see ourselves and our world, our place in it, and can even color how we see God. Unless we squelch these negative messages, we, like those kids that were once artists, can become imprisoned or at least limited by our own stories. So how do we break free from the messages that bind us or harm us? 
and find freedom and the purpose God wants for us. I want to offer you three helpful steps. First, distinguish between the truth of God and the lies of Satan, his counterfeit voice. Tear down false messages. Literally take them captive and renew your mind with God's truth. So let me break this down. First, distinguish. How do we know what's God's voice and what isn't? You may have heard that Secret Service agents are trained how to spot counterfeits not by studying the thousands and thousands of them that are out there, but by knowing very intimately the genuine article. And so we do well to go to what God's already said about himself in his own word and become intimately familiar with his truth in the Bible. My experience also is that we should be curious. We should question when we hear these narratives that are negative. God doesn't shout. He doesn't taunt me. He doesn't shame me. Now his voice can be convicting, uh, but never condemning. The Bible confirms this in Romans 8.1. There is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit, when He convicts me, is specific. He may say, He may give me this message that's really clear. What you just said was hurtful to Him or her. On the other hand, the counterfeit voice of the evil one is very broad and sweeping. It may sound something like, you are such a jerk. She's prettier than you. You're such a slob. You see the difference? When we hear those things, it's time to be curious. Vicki, my wife, asks, whose team wins if we buy into that message? Satan's or God's? Next, we tear down. Before we renew our minds, or can, it's like cleaning out the attic. We've got to get rid of what's already in there that's cluttering things up. Everything that sets itself up against God and His way has to go. 2 Corinthians 10.5 puts it this way. We demolish, and the word for that is literally tear down, arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's a military term that literally means make that thought give up and become obedient to Christ. So we must literally tear down those lies and those old messages that hold us back. And then renew our minds. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's where the transformation occurs, is when we renew our minds. Garbage in, garbage out. Truth in, truth out. We don't have to let those destructive messages define us. God wants to transform us. Help us disrupt responses to those old messages. So I invite you to look through a new lens today. Through the eyes of the God of the universe, the creator of all that is. And this is really noteworthy here. Ephesians 
teaches us. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And the Greek word for workmanship in here is poema. Something made skillfully and artfully. The root word for that, or the the root, is for our English word, poem. I think that's noteworthy. Consider that. We are God's poem. And since he does nothing halfway, we're his masterpiece. This way of thinking is not just academic. It's very personal for me. The story I'm about to share is mine. And before I dive into it, I need to say something here. Uh, I have a lot of admiration and compassion for my dad. His mother died at childbirth. He was abandoned by his father. He was homeless, often hungry in the depression. He had no positive role models. He fell into an incredibly rough crowd and began to drink heavily. Miraculously, he found Jesus along his way. Immediately stopped drinking. But with no counselor, no recovery program, no support to help him heal, to help him know how to experience his feelings and deal with them in a healthy way, uh, he, he was paddling his own canoe in many respects. He, he had the love of Christ in his heart, but no external help. The last 20 years of his life, uh, my dad was the most gentle, compassionate, godly soul you'd ever want to meet. He wanted everyone he met to know the Jesus that had literally saved his life. But what was also true, while I was a child, that unhealed anger within him was a landmine. And when it was triggered, it became awful. He became like a monster. While it's not the whole story by any means, I grew up in a very toxic environment with a toxic level of abuse of every kind. The constant threat of violent outbursts from my dad hung over us like a specter, and we all walked on eggshells. The wounds of those experiences left us all with messages that shaped our lives. The message my older brother took away was, if I accomplish great things, maybe dad will love me. And so, from a very tender age, he set out to accomplish things. He mastered the piano, saxophone, vocal music. Academically, he was incredible. He was valedictorian of a large high school. As a national merit finalist, he got a full-ride scholarship to a famous Ivy League school. The achievements piled up and piled up, but there was still a hole in his heart that he tried to medicate and fill with sexual and substance addictions. Unopposed, the destructive messages that were going off in his mind drowned out the voice of God. I truly believe God wanted to transform my brother Al, wanted him to find his place in his poema. Many years I watched him in his sad downward spiral. It was like seeing a train wreck in slow motion and not being able to do anything about it. And finally, Memorial Day of 1993, I got the call 
I had dreaded for so long he had taken his life. Looking back, the pain he endured and the pressure he was under, I could see. I lived it too. As a boy no more than four years old, I began watching my dad like a hawk, and if I noticed that he was becoming agitated, I'd try to use humor to defuse the brewing disaster. And when humor didn't work and the bomb went off, I went and slipped off and hid in the closet in between the shelves of the linens. And I'd stay there hoping that my mom would come and find me, and nobody ever came. Sometimes I'd fall asleep, or when it got quiet, I'd sneak out and slip into bed. My mom was overwhelmed with my brother's and my father's emotional needs. And one of my earliest memories from her was uh, saying to me, I'm so glad you don't need anything. I don't have capacity for anything else. Adding to this toxic, toxic cocktail was um, my brother. He not only sexually abused me, but he would taunt me with his superior academic form, uh, performance. He would, he would call me Dum Dum was his nickname for me. He would sing it over and over to me in a song. I lost confidence and my grades proved it. In adolescence, I found some kind of acceptance among thugs. And I mean thugs, some of those guys uh, spent time in maximum security prisons. In high school, I declared myself an atheist as a, an intellectual wannabe. And I acted like an atheist. The messages I took away from what I suffered were, you better be self-contained because nobody can do anything about your needs. Don't ever ask anyone to help you. You're stupid. You'll never be able to feed your family. You're inferior and socially inept. People look down on you. Conflict is dangerous. It never ends well. So how did I escape this? How did I end up on a different path than my brother? Well, the good news, literally, is that if we can identify the false messages that are going off inside, these, these internal narratives, get them out of the shadows and name them as the lies that they are, replacing it with God's truth, he wants to give it to us. He's our Father who loves us. We're then on the pathway to freedom. Even though I'd rejected God, he deployed his secret agents to reach me. A drafting instructor slash wrestling coach who made a very public challenge to me and my bravado and channeled my destructive anger into athletic discipline. Four guys from my dorm floor who pointed me to Christ by the way they lived and the way they loved me. A rough-around-the-edges corporate recruiter who saw inside a, a low-average engineering student a leader. God even used thermodynamics to reach me. Um, when I encountered the second law of thermodynamics, for those of you uh, who are familiar with that entropy, I just couldn't square it with the atheistic theories of a random creation of a universe that shows us higher and higher levels of order and complexity, while everything that we can observe tends toward randomness left to itself. I concluded there had to be, this had to be created, and, and if created, a creator. 
I started to devour books by uh, people like Dr. Hugh Ross, who I commend to you as, as one of the prominent co uh, cosmo excuse me, cosmologists. He used the, the scientific discoveries of the last 50 years uh, to scientifically and systematically point me not away from God, but directly to Him. You know, I, entropy needs to be used in a sentence somewhere on my tombstone. <laughs> I, I just uh, couldn't imagine how this all occurred by accident. There had to be a creator more vast and more powerful than I could imagine. It was a turning point for me. God and His truth began to help me tear down the messages that were causing me anxieties and shaping my poor choices, literally binding me. His voice through His Word became clearer and clearer. Miraculously, I got accepted into a best-of-its-class management development program on a, with a Fortune 100 company. And when I entered that program, I fully expected to wash out. Uh, at any one of the four, four critical performance reviews I had to stand for, and my fear of failure could have paralyzed me. But I sensed God helping me every step of the way, building my trust, and maybe a little like Gideon, giving me little assurances that he was with me, that he had a purpose in mind for me. And it gave me the courage to oppose those old voices, the you can'ts and I can'ts that plagued me for so long. Eventually, I became CEO of a $14 billion enterprise with 7,000 employees globally. And despite my brother's constant chiding that people looked down on me and that I ought to go be a hermit, I risked putting myself out there. And uh, my peers elected me to lead two different industry associations. And at this point, I kind of want to be very clear <laughs> that. Uh, what might be considered success in the eyes of the world was not the result of me striking some kind of a deal with God. He is not transactional, and there is nothing I find in the Bible to support any kind of prosperity gospel. Just saying. Choosing to be a Christian doesn't mean we're going to become a corporate executive or rich or famous or successful by worldly standards. But what it does do is give us peace satisfaction and the courage to stand up to what might be binding you. I couldn't be more keenly aware that although I may not have ended up in prison or taking my life, if I had not heard God whispering to me, giving me the courage to tear those false messages down, uh, evil narratives, I would go ahead and say, and replacing them with His truth, I would have missed the poem that he was creating me for. If you've experienced trauma, deep wounds, I am so sorry that happened to you. Every child ought to have a chance to be a kid, to be nurtured and loved, protected. But if trauma is not a part of your story, you may be thinking, eh, I'm sorry that happened to you. This doesn't apply to me. Well, I would invite you to consider my wife, Vicki. Vicki gave me permission to talk to you about her struggle with, and her battle with messages from early on in her childhood. She had a happy childhood. Great parents who loved her, 
So how does she pick up destructive messages? Well, kids are great observers, but they're not very good interpreters. And so they need a lot of guidance. Uh, her interpretation of events left messages that people never intended for her to have or want her to believe. Innocently, she took away lies like, if you do everything right, nothing bad will happen. Or, no matter how hard you try, it can always be better. And that gave birth to a harsh inner critic that can discourage, shame, and exhaust her. And at times it has. When that old message, I'm responsible to do everything right so nothing bad happens, kicks in, she can feel over-responsible, anxious. And she responds by trying to exert control to keep people safe. And she ends up exhausted. She's an amazing woman of faith, but if she isn't alert to those lies, it can become like a virus in her operating system. She has to cling to God's truth that He's the only Savior. Jesus is the only Savior. Not us. And it liberates her to accept that the excellent is just fine. She doesn't have to pursue the per perfect and work herself to exhaustion. Ironically, we both agree she has to fight just as hard as I do not to go back and be imprisoned by those messages that keep us in a yoke of slavery. So whether your destructive messages come from great trauma or mis youthful misinterpretation of less extreme events, the effect of unredeemed messages can be the same. So what destructive messages or voices from the past are whispering, even shouting to your soul today? Do you hear, I only count when I perform? I'm responsible to make other people happy? I'm too much. I have to hide parts of me to be accepted. Or my needs aren't as important as other people's needs. Maybe something else. How might your messages be restraining you from the joy and peace Jesus died to give you? What's holding you back from finding your place in the beautiful poem God wants you to be a part of? Specifically you. Please believe me when I say you're no accident. God couldn't have been more deliberate than when he made you, brought you into being. Psalm 139, 13 and 14 says he created you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God, your father, created carefully you, and he did it on purpose. You're a vital part of his plan, and every part of his plan is needed. Romans 8.28 teaches us, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. It's crystal clear that all of my life experiences, even the chaos, the abuse, the pain, all of it, are part of that poem. It's vastly better than I could have scripted. Even my career was a thread in the tapestry. There were many times that I felt a, a loss of purpose in, when I was doing that work. And I'd come home from a long road trip of conference rooms in multiple cities, and I'd look at my wife and, and say, I don't think I've done a darn thing in this past week for the kingdom of God. And I don't know whether I can get 
a sense of purpose out of another transaction memorial, some kind of lucite that sits on my desk. But I can see clearly now that God used those experiences in, to write new verses, to set us up for a chapter two, where we can now, on a pro bono basis, host pastors, missionaries, and frontline shepherds in four-day marriage retreats. And uh, I'm convinced you know, that he had all that in mind uh, when he brought us into this chapter. So I'm convinced also that underneath the ugliest parts of us, there are wounds that need Jesus' healing touch. Those broken places don't need to be scorned or shamed. They need the light of Christ to care for them. Our Father loves you. He won't condemn you. He wants to care for you and help you find healing. Some of you, like me, may have struggled accepting uh, this incredibly tender aspect of God's love. I, I did for years. But here's something astounding to hold on to. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord is with, your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The God I thought was cold and distant, ready to zap me if I messed up, isn't our God at all. He has a song. He sings over me. Abba, the Aramaic word for daddy, takes delight in you. He rejoices with singing over you. He is with you, and he's mighty to save. Are you tired here today? Discouraged? Anxious? Longing for relief from the bondage of old tapes that keep playing over in your mind? Do you sense his gentle whisper into your soul? The main thing I came here to share today is we have, thanks to Jesus' work on the cross, the power to find freedom. And it's available to you if you'll put, in, put your faith in him. The work of Christ who came, rose up from heaven, came here, died on a cross, and rose again. In his own words, he promises this in Luke 14 or Luke 4:18. <clears throat> the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind. And I love this line, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Truly, the cross is where he took all of our so-called worthlessness, things that the culture or maybe even our own sinful hearts tell us are true, and exchanged it for his blood-bought covering of righteousness. I want to be in heaven with him. You know what kind of people live in heaven? Holy people. How can I, even I, ever be seen by my creator as holy? Again, the Word of God reveals it to us. Colossians 1, 21 through 22 says, Once 
You were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. And so, if the worship team would come, I would love to let you listen to this song, and as you listen to the words, I invite you to believe it. To believe that you can face whatever's been holding you hostage, keeping you from embracing the freedom that Jesus paid for with his precious life. The song is called Belovedness. And uh, I invite you to just really absorb these words.
So are you ready today to trade the harmful messages that hold you back and exchange them for your belovedness to God? If today's the day, I invite you to ask your Heavenly Father to help you. Let Him whisper and respond, Jesus, I hear you. I want to stop listening to the things that are keeping me from the peace and comfort you want me to know. I want to be transformed by you. Take my heart. I give it to you, my Lord. I trust you to guide my steps. I invite you to do this. Thank you.